This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, session 475. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 475 you're listening to. My guest today is Grammy-winning recording and mixing engineer Brian Vibberts, who's worked with Chick Corea, Michael Jackson, Disney, and Metallica, to name a few. Brian and I do the usual working-class audio trip down memory lane and get into his past and where he is at today and all that lies in between. Brian Vibberts coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. Let's talk about patience. There's a lot of opportunity to become frustrated by the process of making records, movies, games, uh, restoration, you know, any, any of the typical disciplines of audio. And the frustrations can come from everything from the client to the technology and the frustrations can come from all different angles, including, but not limited to, the client and or the technology. So let's talk about the client for a sec. Clients are inevitably going to piss you off. They're inevitably going to make decisions that you don't agree with, that you don't think are in their best interests, and their decisions additionally will not be always to your liking when it comes to the schedule. Just when you think you're about to conclude a project that you think is brilliant, somebody's gonna throw a curveball. Doesn't matter if it's uh, a musical artist, an A&R person, a manager, uh, somebody in the camp of the project is going to become a fly in the ointment, as they say. How you react to that is really crucial. And I, and I am not always the most skilled person at this. It's a work in progress for me. I'm sure there are many of you out there that it's a work in progress for as well. Look, first and foremost, we have to remain, and I know I just said it at the top of the rant, but we have to remain patient. We have to remain objective, uh, neutral if possible, in spite of what our own vision is. You can be in the middle of a mix. Somebody can throw something out there and say, what if we did and you're close to finishing the mix and you know that what they're proposing is going to take a lot of time. It's going to take uh, a matter of not only getting your head around what they're proposing, but also just technologically and logistically putting into practice what they're saying. And I think the problem compounds itself when the person is not in the room, when they are remote, when they are emailing or texting, those are the formats, the texting and the emailing, where it's very easy to lose your shit over. I have done it myself. I have sat in my car reading a text at a stoplight or parked waiting for my kids getting out of school going, are you fucking kidding me? And f just kind of quietly flipped out to myself. And that's okay. Doing that in your own private time I think is healthy. I think it's good to get that out of your system so that you can then come to the table when it comes to the conversation and respond accordingly by saying, 
while I don't necessarily agree with this idea for the following reasons, I don't want to shut you down for your creative idea. I say we explore it and see where it takes us. Here's what I think that's going to do to our time. Here's what it's going to do to our budget. Lay out the facts. Don't get emotional over it. Be clear and transparent to say, I disagree on the for the following reasons, if that's your place. You may not be in a position to say that. Whatever you do, do not fire off an email within minutes of receiving their email. That is the dumbest thing you could do because you're gonna be full of emotion, you're gonna say some shit you're gonna regret, and you could get yourself fired from the project as a result. One other thing to think about is taking a step back from you and your own agenda. Taking a step back and thinking about the project from their perspective and try to get in their mindset, right? It's like um, if you watch any of these true crime things like on Netflix or any of the streaming networks, when they're talking about serial killers, the investigators have to get into the mindset of a serial killer. They have to understand where this person is coming from so they can catch them. So if you look at like mind hunters, look at how they deal with that. It's frustrating, yes, that they have a serial killer out there, but they put their, their serial killer hat on to understand where the serial killer is coming from. I'm not suggesting our clients are serial killers, and I'm not trying to cast them in that light. However, You've got to put your client's hat on and you've got to think it through from their perspective. Otherwise, you are just going to drive yourself absolutely bonkers going, what the fuck are these people thinking? Why do they want to make this change? I'm a drummer and I have drummers do shit all the time that drives me absolutely bonkers. That's okay. They're drummers. They're a very different breed. And so I have to put my drummer hat on and think about it from their perspective, even though, in my opinion, I'm always thinking about it from the bigger picture, the song perspective. What's best for the song, not for the individual, right? So there it is. Few tips, few thoughts. You've been through it. You have your own coping mechanisms. Take some of these ideas that I've thrown at you. Exercise restraint, exercise patience. Be cool, don't lose your shit. If you wanna like, Go home, scream into a pillow, and yell at the world privately. I think that's good. I think that's healthy. And then you can get on with the business of the client. And you know what? Sometimes just showing a client, okay, here's what that nutty idea sounds like without saying that nutty idea. And when they hear it, then they know. And if it's good, it's good. You know what? It's better to be have the, the right thing for the project than be right. It's not about you being right. It's about what is best for the project. Hopefully their decision-making is driven towards that and not towards uh, anything other than making the project the best it can be. So I wish you luck, my friends. It's, uh, it's, it's challenging out there. Keep your heads together and don't lose your shit. That's my rant. Thanks for listening. Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, they've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know, if you don't know them, is that Michael and Eben are two of the nicest people on the planet. 
easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might have met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might have heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I have used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and employ a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty, pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You could talk with me about it. As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom very simply. Just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation, and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. Let's get to it. Brian Vibberts here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Brian, welcome to the podcast. Good to be here, Matt. So for the audience, Brian and I met essentially through, once again, I've talked about the importance of getting together in groups. We met through our Dolby Atmos Mixers Network group, also known as DAM, who contains a lot of other guests, actually. And then Brian and I, and actually my brother from another podcast, Lid Shaw, I think it was last Nam. the three of us went out, we were yeah. at dinner together. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Anyways, that's how we know each other. And I've been trying to get Brian on the show for a long time and he's a busy dude. So here we are and we're going to just jump in the way I always start, which is where did you grow up? I grew up in Portland, Connecticut, a very small town in the middle of Connecticut. So small that a lot of people that live in Connecticut don't even know that Portland exists. So Okay, so <laughs> I, I'm going to just confess my lack of geography and tell you that I had no idea there was a Portland, Connecticut. Right. Yeah. Most people don't. So it's okay. <laughs> Portland, Oregon, Portland, Maine, Portland, yep. Connecticut. What Por the hell? Portland, Connecticut. Yeah, oh, that's right. Okay. What was growing up there like? It was great. No complaints. Now that I'm here in LA, I, I definitely don't <laughs> yeah. miss the cold winters, <laughs> but we definitely had a, a, our share of those. 
But to give you an idea of the size of the town, I think it was around 8,000 or so people at that time. There was less than 400 people in my high school. So everybody knew everybody. I think I had 86 people in my graduating class. So it was very small. So if you don't show up to the high school reunion, do you get lots of phone calls? Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. I mean, I try to go when I can, but it's it's not always easy. Wow. That's a small, yeah. small yeah, set, set up there. All right. So tell me about the possibilities of music in that town. Like, was that a part of your upbringing? Did they have a proper high school band? And Yeah, actually, the, the band was a fairly strong band that was started, I think it was started in the 60s. And from the story that I was told, the guy who I think he was coaching one of the football teams was starting to pick out people like, you know what, you would play good trombone, you would play good trumpet. And, and he just like formulated the started the school band and it became a very strong band. His name was Eric Osterling. And I was there, I uh, went to high school, 82, 86 in there. So we had a marching band that was very good. We had a, a stage band, like a jazz band. And we had just the normal performing band. I was in all three. I was also in the chorus. So I would switch between every other day would be, you know, band, then chorus, band, then chorus. So it was great. Wow. Essentially, everybody, uh, everybody who plays football has to be in band and has to be in chorus and has to be <laughs> a little bit of a problem when they want the uh, band to show up to the football games because they're already yeah, on the field. Yeah, that's, that's an issue. <laughs> <laughs> what was your primary instrument at that time? Drums. Mm. And I started playing drums at the age of eight. Yeah. Was, you had a marching band? Yeah, marching band. So sometimes I'd play, I usually play the snare drum for the marching band. I think there was one time I had to play the bass drum and man, that just gets heavy when you're, when you're marching a few miles. Yeah. Not yeah. good for the back. <laughs> yeah. I, I thank my lucky stars. I was able to be on the snare, snare drum line because I couldn't read the music very well for the quads or the, the quints oh, or whatever they were. Yeah, right. And, and the All bass the drum, I was like, I'm not carrying that thing. No way. <laughs> yeah. So did you have siblings? Do you have yeah, siblings? Yeah, I have a younger sister. She's four years younger. And was she musical? Actually, yeah, she was singing and she did more of the chorus, but she also played flute for a while mm -hmm. in the band. So and it was at that point, it was, it was for fun, Yeah, really, all of us. But my parents don't play any instruments. They love music, but they don't, they don't play any music. No instruments, no singing, anything like that. But we would listen to music a lot. Yeah. So it was just kind of always kind of there. When did your awareness of this personnel involved in making records come up? When did you start looking at the back of record covers and trying to figure out what that was all about? Engineers, producers, et cetera. Yeah. Well, first of all, I would buy quite a bit of vinyl and just being able to see the credits in the back of the artwork and see all, I have the, all the information right there. The artwork's good. It's all right there instead of having to look it up and you look it up and like nowadays and the credits are not correct and all that. Mm. But I was doing that at probably in junior high school, six, seven, eighth grade around there. 
but I didn't, not too seriously, just gathering information, just curious about the whole thing of what's involved and all that. Both my sister and I would make these funny tapes, kind of like a Saturday Night Live skit kind of a thing where we do different voices and I'd have my cassette deck. And so I was even recording. That was even many years earlier than that. So, so we had fun doing that. So I was still kind of a, a recording at that point, but it was, it was all for fun. Not really thinking that was something that I would ever want to do. It was, I was just doing it. It was a fun thing to do. So going forward now a bit, when I was in high school, I was in a band and there was an opportunity for us to go into a recording studio and properly record two original songs. So we wrote up this paper and we actually got it approved through the school through an extended learning program. The school actually paid half of the costs of the studio and everything. And we went in one day and into a 16 track studio and recorded two original songs. And that was the moment when, you know, I was drumming, we we're all playing and then we would go in to the control room to listen and then I would hear what it sounded like in there. I was like, wow, okay, this is, I was just hearing the headphone mix while I was playing the drums. Now I'm hearing everything in these, you know, nice speakers. And, <laughs> and it was a whole different experience. And all of a sudden I was like, wow, like what is going on in here? What is all this? And then when he was, the engineer was putting just simple things, you know, like some delays on the guitar solo, and that kind of thing. It just really intrigued me. And really at that moment, that's when I really started being interested more of what's going on in the control room than in the actual recording space. Interesting. And, and where was the studio? The studio, it was in Connecticut. I forget the town. Okay. But it wasn't in Portland. No, it wasn't in Portland. No. <laughs> okay. Yeah. It was only a few towns away. I don't even know a lot of what they did there, but it was like a 16 track, two inch machine and probably just the basic things. We were only there that one day. So what was exactly there? I don't know. Mm -hmm. I've, I've tried to look them up to contact them, but I don't think they're around any, anymore. So that was when the switch was flipped in your mind a bit. Yeah, I, absolutely. Yeah. So walking out of there and moving forward, what were your thoughts? What was your headspace like? Well, I, I, you know, we were all excited, first of all, because having just recorded two original songs and part of it, we were excited. Part of it was, I was a little bit more difficult than we thought it would be when it came to like singing the harmonies and all that. It wasn't just like sing it once or twice. We had to go through quite a few times and all right, how about one at a time, you know, not everyone all at the same time. And it just normal recording procedure, but we were all excited about it. And actually most of us, well, we all continued in music in one way or another everyone in that band and we just had a lot of fun doing it hmm. and actually an interesting thing is we had written a another song that was an original we got to perform at the high school graduation which 
I don't know if that's ever happened before or since. I don't know, <laughs> but that, that was a rare thing. I don't even know how we pulled that off to get that to happen, but that was a very cool thing. Yeah, I got to play my uh, high school homecoming dance. Nice. In a, nice. in a band I was in. <laughs> well, so you have that experience, and what does that do to set you up for the future? Does that start to dictate the direction of your decision-making? Well... No, not really. Underneath, uh-huh. yes. An undercurrent of such. <laughs> but of really, I was, music was not the goal. All through, probably from maybe eighth grade, all through high school, what I wanted to do is I wanted to work for NASA. That was my career path. That's what I wanted to do. So I, I saved a lot of money mowing lawns <laughs> every week to buy my first telescope. I bought that when I was in eighth grade and then I got a camera and I would hook up the camera to the telescope and take pictures of the planets and stars and all that. So that's what I was doing late at night. I would go to school, do homework, whatever, go to sleep. And then I'd wake up around midnight until like midnight to maybe two or three in the morning (laughs) observing the stars and all that stuff. And then I would go back to sleep So I was doing that for quite a while. That was the path. And I always loved music, but that was the main goal was basically science. Hmm. So when I graduated, I went to UMass at Amherst for one year as an astronomy major and a music minor. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Which is is an odd comparing. It is an odd combo. But it was cool because I was taking a lot of the astronomy and physics classes and all that. But I did have one that was very cool called the physics of music. And that he was a great professor. He went through all kinds of things of like the physics of music. And he was great with being hands-on. So he would actually show what was going on. He got all these different tools of actually showing the concepts instead of just reading about it or lecturing about it. It was a great class. But the thing that changed everything with this path is on January 28th, 1986, the space shuttle Challenger blew up. So, and I was in high school. That was the end of my senior year, that last semester. So that kind of changed everything. NASA shut down for two and a half years. Mm. So I finished high school. I was at UMass. So I'm now starting UMass. And I was kind of told that I would have to get a doctorate to work at NASA. So that was kind of the path. (laughs) And I'm thinking, I'm going to college for this to work at a place that's closed and has been closed for over a year. And nobody even knew if if NASA was even going to open again. Mm -hmm. So what am I doing? Looking back, I just didn't have enough knowledge. I mean, there's a lot of places that I could have gotten a job that were still open, but I, I, I just didn't have enough knowledge to really know that at the time. So then I decided I would change it. So instead of being a minor in music, I changed it to be a major in music and transferred to Berkeley College of Music in Boston. And you were playing drums there? Yep. And I went there for four years. I went for the production and engineering program, but at Berkeley, you have to play an instrument throughout all four years. So I was continuing playing drums. How was that experience for you? Some parts were 
pretty tough. <laughs> some of the drumming classes, because I was in some of the classes with drumming majors. They were there to be drumming performers on stage and all that. And that was not my focus. I, my focus was to be recording, producing, mixing. So some of the classes were a little bit tough. And I came from more of a, in terms of music, I listened to a lot of music, but playing drums, I was playing a lot of rock and pop, progressive rock, funk, you know, like Tower of Power and Blood, Sweat and Tears, that kind of music. Mm -hmm. I was actually in a, another band with a six piece horn section. Then all of a sudden I had to play jazz because Berkeley was jazz oriented. Mm -hmm. So now I'm you know, just trying to keep a swing, a rhythm on the cymbal while doing other things was starting to get a little bit difficult for me because that's not what I played. So that part of it was challenging, but I got through it. And I was lucky that because of having one year at UMass, I got all the science and, you know, social studies, you know, psychology and all that stuff. All that was like kind of done almost because of what I did at UMass. Yeah. So then I went mostly into pure music and recording and digital recording and those kind of classes. So it was good. And luckily, not everyone gets into the program. So I was lucky that I got into the program. What's the criteria for getting in? Unknown, I guess. I, I don't really... I don't really know okay. because there were people that would have the same grades and some would get in, some wouldn't. There's only a certain number of spots because the studios are not huge. You can't have 200 people in a studio. Right. And there's only so many studios. So there's, it's, it's limited what they can have. Luckily, I got in. But I didn't know that. No one knows that until close to the end of the first year. Mm. So I went there for four years. And completed the program? Yep. Got a degree. And then... Where do you go from there? While at Berkeley, I got a, an internship at a studio, which was right next to Fenway Park. And they did mostly MIDI, but we didn't have a lot of bands coming in. Hmm. It was called Syntex Recording. And there was keyboards everywhere. It was a pretty complicated setup, actually, MIDI-wise. I got an internship there and worked there, worked there, worked there. And after a while, I was thinking, like, when do I start getting paid? <laughs> you know, how does this work? Like, no one, no one really told me how long am I an intern and work for free? So at one point, I just went to the owner and said, I'd like to start getting paid. Is that possible? It was just like, yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Had you thinking, not asked, like, I wonder how long that would have gone on for. Yeah, I know. He was probably like, I was wondering when you were going to ask that. <laughs> so I was, I worked there towards the last bit of college and then that summer. But I thought Boston is not really where I want to be. I need to be in a bigger city. At that point, I thought either New York, which was top of the list, or possibly Nashville. Mm-hmm. Those were kind of the two. Just growing up in the East Coast, I really didn't think of L.A., even though I knew L.A. was definitely a big location on the list for music. It seemed too far away. So I eventually went to New York. I want to ask you something, though. Sure. A lot of people coming out of high school, going through college, some of their decisions are based on things their friends are going to do, colleges their friends are going to do. Mm. In my wife's case, she had an opportunity with a scholarship full ride 
at one school, but decided that she was going to blow that off so she could go be with her friends and eventually ended up realizing, oh, actually, I need to go to this other school and had already missed the opportunity for the scholarship. So did you have anybody in your life, friendship-wise, that was influencing you in where to go, what to do, or were you a fairly independent thinker in that in that way? Mm. I don't think I knew. I didn't know anyone else had gone to, to Berkeley. But even before that, I didn't know anyone else that was an astronomy major. Okay. Except for the, some of the programs that I would go to and be involved in. I mean, I kind of knew them, but not friends. I don't know. I feel like nobody really <laughs> talked about it. Everyone was talking like high school and all that. They weren't really talking that much about the future. So there was no real influence there, I don't think. Okay. So was the influence coming, and I'm getting psychological on you, <laughs> going backwards. Yeah. What was the conversation like in the household? Were you being somewhat influenced and or driven by your parents? Okay. That's a great question. Good answer. I have, I have a good answer. They owned their own business. Oh. So that for me, learning and seeing them run their own business really set me up to have more knowledge about running my own business because I own my own business now. I'm freelance and I have my own studio. I learned a lot of those basics years ago when I was growing up. Over the summers, I would, I would work for them. Even summers throughout college, I would work with them. So I would see that so I, there was a very strong foundation business-wise from both my parents because it was, it was run out of the household. They delivered uh, retail oil uh -huh. for heat. So it was like heat, heating oil. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Very obviously yeah. a big thing in the East Coast. Yeah, yeah. So the main office was part of the house. So I would see that every day. So at one point I was answering phones and then there was times when I would be doing some of the bookkeeping uh -huh. at the end of the day and adding things up. So I kind of got knowledge of, of a lot of different things, but I think that they wanted me to kind of take over the business to answer your question a little bit. They kind of wanted me for that, which I didn't want to do. I knew financially the money is, was good with the business. It was a solid business, but that wasn't really where my passion was. So to me, uh, that wasn't really, <laughs> it wasn't, I guess I considered it along the way, yeah. uh, but I, I never really came to the conclusion that that was really what I wanted to do where my, where my heart was. When you say that you learned a lot of the business aspects, like, could you pinpoint that a little more? Like what specifically do you recall learning from your parents in regards yeah, to I having, think, running your yeah, own business? Yeah, you know, like from my mom, just some of the things like just dealing with customers, if there were problematic customers <laughs> where some kind of issue would come up and just seeing how she would deal with it. Because I would hear her side of the conversation and sometimes she would talk about it afterwards and kind of explain to me how she dealt with it and what the issue is because she knew that at some point I'm going to be answering the phone too. So I need to know that information. So just kind of dealing one-on-one -on -one with customers mm -hmm. on the phone. Also both my mom and my dad, how they treated the customers. I mean, their customers loved them. <laughs> so I think that one-on-one -on -one of 
how they just talk to them in day-to-day business. But also for my dad, just accounting and learning the numbers part of it. Did their influence shape your ways of dealing with money as an adult? Yeah, for sure. Okay. Yeah, both like personal finances and running a business. Actually, the first business that I owned started, I was in high school and it was a DJ business. You know, I had said that I already started buying a lot of records. So I had a lot of music and I had a nice turntable preamp. I had basically half of it, but I didn't have all the equipment that was needed for a DJ system. So two of the people that were in the band that we went to record those original songs in the studio, I asked two of them, great friends, Greg and Luke, to join me in forming a DJ company. And we would do the high school dances. None of us had enough to do it ourselves (laughs) because like, you know, Greg had the big speakers and I had the records and the turntable. So between the three of us, we had enough to do it. And some of the stuff we had from just playing in the band, like PA system and that kind of thing that we would use. So I grew that DJ company to become Dr. Vib DJ specialist. I eventually just kind of bought out them. I mean, I I had enough then. I had everything that I needed, all the equipment, all the music. But we would still do it together for a while. And then I continued that through college. So I was going to Berkeley College of Music, UMass too, UMass and Berkeley College of Music. I mean, they were only two hours away by car. Most of the times I would come back to do that and I would have one of the guys, Luke, Luke and I would do them together and we would do weddings and anniversary parties and proms and church dances, all kinds of things. So I continued that going. So I was learning more of running my own business and I continued that even when I went to New York After Boston, I was working at Right Track Recording, which I'm sure we'll get to in a minute. I still had the DJ company when I was at Right Track, and I couldn't go back because at that point I was an assistant engineer. I couldn't go back anytime I wanted, but I would set up everything, and then I would have Luke actually do the job. I continued as long as I could. It must have been eight or nine years from the very beginning to the end after a while, it was just like, okay, we can't do it anymore. But that was really the first business I owned. Wow. And I learned a lot, a lot of that from how my parents ran the company. So many lessons and so much experience to gain from that situation. Yeah. Right Track recording in New York. So you leave Berkeley School of Music, you go to New York. How'd you wind up at Right Track? I, <laughs> I, I went there in advance. I went to the Hit Factory, Right Track. I think I went to quad just to interview, Mm -hmm. but nobody said yes. I was like, okay. So I didn't have a job and I thought, well, I guess I'm just going to (laughs) go just move there to New York from Boston and try to get a job once I'm there because nobody was saying yes. There, There was maybes. There wasn't a no. Everyone was like, maybe we'll have to see if there's an opening when you're actually here in town, whatever. So then I had everything ready to move. I had an apartment and everything. And I moved on a Thursday. On a Friday, I got a call from Right Track saying, are you still interested in, in a job? And I said, yeah, I am. And I mean, I was, I was hardly finished unpacking or anything. And they said, well, you can start Monday. Wow. 
That's so fantastic. I was like, okay, it just, I mean, it just, it just happened. What was the experience like there for you? What were the takeaways from that experience? One of the things that I've always said to people and thought in my mind is to always keep learning something new every single day. That's what I did at Right Track. First of all, I, I started there at the lowest, I was a runner. I was the lowest possible position they had. And at that point, I didn't think it was fair. I was like, I just came out of Berkeley College of Music with a degree. And now I'm in the same position as people that just got out of high school with no experience, no training, and we're doing the same job. But hmm. what I realized later is I moved up much faster than they did. A matter of probably about six months where some other people were up to two years before they moved up to assistant engineer. So later on, it made more sense, but at the time it didn't make a lot of sense to me. Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it, because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Samply, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Samply.app or Samply.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Samply.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Samply.app. Check it out. But when I was a runner, I thought to myself, every single day, I'm going to learn something new, whether that's going in and going through a compressor or the H3000 or part of the console or the microphones, know what the microphone is, the name of the microphone, the things that I didn't see that were in Boston that were different now being in a bigger, real professional studio. So that's what I did every single day. And at one point I thought, okay, the next thing I really need to tackle is the patch bay. But there was no way to do that because sessions were in there all day. So at night, I would go in and literally I, I bought like a cardboard as big as the patch bay. And it was a life-size drawing of the patch bay. And I did all the circles and I named each one. It was an NSSL. And I named what all they were up to even the outboard gear down below. And so... At night, if I had to answer the phones or do something that I didn't want to be doing, I could look at this and I would just go through in my head like, okay, what if someone wanted me to put this certain EQ 
on the insert of that channel, how would I do it? I'd be like, okay, I'd, I'd go from this on the patch bay here to here, and then I'd go from here to there. And so I was able to practice without being in the room. <laughs> and I'd have it at home in my apartment. I'd, I'd really try to figure out to be fast at it. And a couple of people saw me doing that while I was there. Other people in my position, they thought I was absolutely crazy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but I did get confidence and I think that confidence was starting to show. And then at one point, one day, one of the assistants was sick. And then they asked the assistant, well, what should we do? Should, who should we get to go in? And, and she said, get Brian. He knows what he's doing. Because she knew. She'd be cleaning up the studio. I'd be like, you know, I'd be drawing pictures of the patch bay and I'd be doing things. I you mean, know? if that is not a clear indicator of ambition and focus and desire to get into the control room. I'm, I don't know what is. Yeah. That, that is pretty yeah. damn impressive, Brian. Uh, thanks. Yeah. I don't know anyone else who has done that with the patch bay, but it makes sense because even at home, I could learn the patch bay without being in the room, but it was as real as it gets. I have never heard of anybody ever doing that until you just mentioned it. Wow. <laughs> So it was very, very helpful. To say the for, least. Yeah. So the very first assisting gig that I had was Mariah Carey MTV Unplugged. That's what I was filling in for. So I had to know what I was doing. First of all, wow. the session's already going. So, you know, I kind of need to know everything that is already happening. Of course, I didn't. And they knew that it was, I, I believe it was with Frank Filippetti. So he knew that, <laughs> that I wasn't the, the normal assistant engineer and that I didn't know as much as she did, but I got through it. Impressive. Can you think of a single highlight that came out of your time there that you just look back on and go, ah, remember when at right track? Hmm. I think it was those people taking a chance on me when they realized that I was ready to do it. I think it was those kinds of of things and just like being in the room now with i always say i was lucky to start in a big studio and to do that and i just thought in my head wow i'm i'm very fortunate to be in the room with you know this level of musicians and artists and i think that was that was the kind of the big takeaway from that first studio is really getting used to suddenly just okay now i'm with huge artists how long were you at Right Track and what was the last position you had? I was there for about a year and a half. I ended up being an assistant engineer officially. And then I moved from there to the Hit Factory. Okay. And what prompted that? I think it was just, it seemed like a better opportunity at the Hit Factory. I knew someone that worked at the Hit Factory who had gotten a job there. And they were always telling me like how great it was there. And the Hit Factory was really my first choice where I wanted to work in the beginning because I, I did interview there when I was still living in Boston. I went and interviewed there, but I didn't get the job. So in my head, that was kind of like my goal of where I wanted to be. So I think that was the shift. And how was your time there? Oh man, they were incredible. It was like major artist after major artist. That's really where I started to learn more about production, engineering, 
and again, you know, like Mariah Carey was back in. That was, of course, like a whole year with Michael Jackson at the Hit Factory, Billy Joel working with Sir George Martin. A lot of highlights from the Hit Factory. And that was when they first opened the new facility because they had two different buildings. Shortly after I had gotten a job there, they had both buildings and I became more situated in the new building. And that's where I started to learn how to record orchestras because they had a large room for a large orchestra. So that was the very first time I was involved in an orchestral session, which was Pocahontas. But it was the very last recording dates that they had. So there was a lot of firsts that happened at the Hit Factory and a lot of I mean, the list of artists that I worked with there is pretty incredible. Hmm. How long did that last and what was the cause of you leaving? I was there beginning of 93 until mid 95. The reason I left, I think is the same as everybody that leaves the hit factory is one day all of a sudden I was fired. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) For for no no good reason. So I tried to get a reason, but there was really no reason. I think in the end, I was maybe getting paid too much per hour. That's what I kind of got in my own head of what the reason was. The night before, I had worked with Tom Lord Algae on a Dave Matthews band, Ants Marching session. And then the very next day, (laughs) that was it. I got the call that I needed to, to come in to the studio. Interesting. Just to get fired. <laughs> yeah. Can you come down here so we can fire you in person? Yeah. 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 That's okay. I've been fired over the phone from a studio before, so <laughs> you got lucky. But my but my time there was I look back at that time as a major highlight and really something that set me on a even a bigger path. Hmm. I'm sure you were a little bit devastated by getting fired, but where did you go from there? Well, I had to go into the studio to get fired. And so right after that, I literally walked out the door of the hit factory, walked across the street into Sony music studios and asked to get a job there. I literally went from one right to the other. Damn. Good for you. Right after. And they said, yes, right away. They already knew me mm-hmm. there. Some of the people that were in management already knew me. So as I said, we we don't even need to have an interview with you, Brian. We know you. We know who you are. Yeah, totally. Yes. So that was it. I was at Sony Music Studios and hired as a a staff engineer. How long did that last? I was there a little over five years. Wow. Okay. So this New York run was a a, a chunk of time. about 10 years. Wow. Okay. Your time there at Sony was there. Once again, it's the same question. It's like, what was the takeaway? Hmm. Again, it was more skills. I was learning more skills, learning how to work on Broadway shows, on live broadcast, live broadcast via satellite, both audio only and audio and video. There was a series called A&E Live by Request, which was live audio and video. And I wasn't the, the mixing engineer, but I was one of the main technical engineers that had to make sure that everything worked properly. I had to connect all the rooms and all the patches, and I was kind of responsible for making sure that it got up to the satellite and we could hear it coming back down and, and all you know along the way. 
So there was just more skills learned there. When I was at the Hit Factory, that's when I first did my own engineering. That was another thing that, that was just the engineer couldn't make it in. And I was assisting and all of a sudden I was just thrown onto the session, mm-hmm. and, but I was ready. So I, I was fine. I was nervous because, you know, you go in and you're thinking I'm the assistant mm-hmm. and then a phone call comes. Oh no, now you're the engineer. I'm like, okay. All right. And really what calmed me down a bit is like, okay, I recorded bands and was in charge of recording at Berkeley. So I've done this. Right. It's just that these are different musicians, more accomplished musicians, but I already have this experience. I've done this so I can do it. So anyway, I did more of that, obviously, at Sony. And again, the the same clients were kind of going between all these studios. So again, I worked with Mariah Carey there. So it was at Right Track, at Hit Factory, at Sony. I kept working it with Mariah. But yeah, learning more skills. And I think a huge thing in my career that has helped me stay busy is being diverse. Hmm. And along the way of what we're talking about here sets all this up because I'm recording and mixing records. I do film and TV. I engineer live broadcast, obviously up the different, you know, like stereo 5.1 Atmos, all that stuff. But when one is slow, the other one's busy. They're not all slow at the same time. And that keeps me generally busy. There's still, everything's still a roller coaster of busy and slow, busy and slow. But all of this at the Hit Factory and Sony and all that, learning all these different skills set me up for that. Also, I'm sure you would agree with this, that like management, knowing who you are, not even going through an interview process, the confidence that comes with having built relationships like that when they just say, oh yeah, come on over. We'll, we'll take mm. you in is immense in any scenario, regardless of audio. It's, yeah. it's crazy how that can just build a foundation of confidence around you. Yeah. I think it's good to be confident as long as you don't have the ego and you're not overconfident. Right. But I think having that confidence and that, that was part of what it was Earlier on at Right Track, I was building that confidence, learning something new every day. I was building that. And I think people just, they were just aware of it. They sensed it that, okay, he, he kind of knows what he's doing. He hasn't been in the rooms that much yet, really, but I, I kind of trust he can handle it, that kind of a feeling. So I think if you have that confidence, other people will sense it and opportunities will, will come your way. One big thing at Sony that was a big takeaway, I think, is I was on a mixing project. I was actually there with the recording as well for Herbie Hancock, uh-huh. Gershwin's World. And so when it came to the mixing, Bruce Wadeen came in hmm. and was mixing it. And I was then, even though I was a staff engineer, there was sometimes I would be assisting. So I was assisting Bruce for the mix and it, and it, he said that at a certain point he told this to the producer that he had to leave to do another project so we have to get this done within these few weeks mm. <laughs> and it just got slower and slower and we, we were behind schedule and then finally bruce says to the producer he's like well whatever it was in one, one or two days i'm i'm leaving so 
kind of almost like, what's our plan here? And the producer was freaking out, like, well, what, what do you mean? You're, what do you mean you're leaving? What, what? And Bruce was like, I told you I, I had this amount of time, and and that's it. He's like, I'm going to mix Quincy. <laughs> and the producer's like, well, who am I going to get to mix it? And Bruce said, Brian, he's an excellent engineer. He can do it. Wow. And Bruce gave me the rest of the gig. <laughs> Holy shit. Yeah. And it was only half mixed. So he mixed half and then I mixed half and he kept some of his racks there for a while. And then they went away, which made it more difficult for me to keep the, the same sound. But it was an amazing thing where he basically just handed it over to me. And, and I've talked to other people and they said that Bruce did not really do that to many people at all. So I think I was the only the second person that they knew of that Bruce had given a a session over to somebody like that. Yeah. So that's like what an amazing thing. I mean, it's like getting knighted or like getting the handshake on the Great British Baking Show. Yeah, and from Bruce Sudin, I mean, for me, I consider him to be the best. (laughs) Okay, so tell me how Sony concluded. At a certain point. I felt like I had kind of outgrown the studio and I needed something bigger. It it started to get more and more hip hop sessions and I'm fine with doing that, but that's not all that I wanted to do. So I thought I need to make a change. And again, I thought maybe Nashville, but then the opportunity was like, okay, go to LA and see, I just kept getting information like Los Angeles is where there's so much going on. You should go there. I made some calls, tried to see what was happening in, in LA. I really didn't know anybody. And I just thought, I'm just going to drive across the country <laughs> and go. So that's what I did. And I, I first got here and thought, I've been doing this for long enough. I can just go freelance. And that didn't quite work. <laughs> Every Everyone that I knew was in New York. <laughs> so right. uh, when those people in New York would come to L.A. to do a project, they'd be like, oh, let's call Brian. He's there. So it was it was good. But that did not happen much at all. I mean, I it was a whole new place. One thing that I didn't know at the time is actually my roommate from my first year at Berkeley was in LA. I didn't know at the time. (laughs) So actually I, I did know some people, but at the time, yeah, nothing helped me. So after about a year and a half of trying to go freelance right away, I had to go back to the studios. So I went to Ocean Way recording and they saw my resume and the studio manager just looked at me and was like, Brian, you're just way overqualified for this position. And I said, I, I know, but it won't be a problem. There's no ego. It, it won't be a problem. She's like, I'm afraid that you're going to think you're going to be assisting another engineer thinking I can be doing this better. And I'm like, that's not who I am. You know, as a person, that's not. That's not how I think. So they took a chance and they're like, okay, we'll try it. So 
that is how I started to get to know more of the record label people and the, and the producers that were based in LA and musicians. And that's how I was then after probably about two and a half years at ocean way. Then I went freelance and I've been freelance ever since. Wow. That's a pretty speedy jump off the diving board into Los Angeles. Yeah. I figured I was ready. I mean, I thought I was ready when I first arrived and I think technically I was ready, but the network of people I knew was, was not ready. Right. And it's interesting when you come at it from, I mean, right track, hit factory, Sony, all that experience, you show up there, you're more mature, you kind of have a little better focus and understand the bigger picture of what you're trying to achieve. So it's definitely a different experience than when you first moved to New York. Right. How long have you been in Los Angeles now? Since 2000. So 24 years, 23 years, really. So give me the broad picture view here. You have a studio that you're in that you're talking to me from now that you work out of. Is that in your home? Yes. Okay. And it's funny when I went freelance in 2000, end of 2004, mm -hmm. at that point, I didn't have my own studio. I got a little Pro Tools rig and I mean little. <laughs> it was in like, it, it, you can't even call it a studio. I, I could edit there and I would never say I could mix, but I could at least do some editing like that. But I, I had to go to the different studios to be able to record or mix in other studios. So eventually I thought I need to be able to do this on my own so I can give artists a different price that might be more reasonable for their budget. And so by 2009, I started building this room. And it's a proper studio space. It's a floated room. So the floor is floated and the floor doesn't touch the walls, all that kind of thing. It's a small room. It's, it's like a, it's a spare bedroom, mm -hmm. but I made it be as, as good as I could make it. And it's, and it's acoustically treated. Uh, I have tube traps everywhere and, and I'm, I'm both hardware and software. And like anyone that owns a studio, it's a never ending <laughs> evolving thing where it's buying some more gear or more plugins or, or more speakers. But I think it's great that I have my own space. This is where I mix everything since really since about, I'd say 2010, really everything that I've mixed has been in here, unless I had to go somewhere else for whatever reason. Yeah. But if it's up to me, my choice, I'm, I'm always here. This is where all my tools are. So I feel I can get the best sound out of this room. Right. Totally understand. Yeah. I can't fathom mixing anywhere else at this point unless uh, yeah. I'm at my space in my house. Right. Could you talk a little bit about when you arrived and trying to cultivate contacts and clients so that you could be freelance in Los Angeles? Was there a conscious approach at that time or, or in retrospect, did you not really have an approach where you just kind of go in with the flow? At first, there was no real approach. <laughs> Because I really, being in New York, I didn't have to do the networking and get to know people because I was on staff. So being a staff engineer at Sony, 
I didn't have to get work. The work would come in mm -hmm. and then be given to me. So I didn't have to do that at all. So it was a whole new concept, really. And I felt like I wasn't good at it. I didn't know really how to do it. So I talked to quite a few people, not just engineers, but just other people in the industry. And they gave me some tips of just joining groups. And I, I had joined the SCL, which is the Society of Composers and Lyricists. Even though I don't, I'm not a, a writer right. now. I mean, early on, I wrote music, but that I don't do that now. But any professional in the industry, if you're a producer or engineer, you can be a, a part of the group. So I did that and met more musicians and composers and all that. And it, especially for like film and TV, I met a lot of people there. And then I joined the CCC, which is the California Copyright Convention. That's mostly lawyers and ASCAP and BMI. So it's a little bit more business part of it. Mm -hmm. But I was, I was going to places where I wasn't meeting all engineers. <laughs> <laughs> right, because right. that that's not going to help me much unless another engineer is so super busy, they would spill over work to me or something. But right. <laughs> that doesn't happen that much. So I was meeting other people in the industry, and and I would go to functions. Of course, the Recording Academy. Mm -hmm. I've been a voting member since '94, so I would go to the Recording Academy functions and meet people there. So it was just getting out, doing things, meeting people. There, there was that part of it. And then there was obviously when people came in, when I was at Ocean Way, I would meet the people there. That was a little different because it's, you're working. Right, right. Yeah. But the whole networking part, which some people just consider networking to be a bad word. <laughs> to me, it, it's sincere. Mm -hmm. So when I'm meeting people, I'm just getting to know them really as a person. And then, well, maybe in the future, maybe we can work together. It's not like pushing to try to get something right then or in the next month or whatever. It's just some of these relationships kind of have to cultivate over time. Right. Yeah. I think that's great advice. There's not a, a negative aspect to networking for me. I feel the same way. It's to me, it's making new friends. It's it's yeah. learning about people. Yeah, meeting new people, making new friends. Growing your friend base. And then if there happens to be business opportunities, it makes it that much easier. It's a bonus, <laughs> right? Yeah. There's people that I've, I've met from years ago and were great friends. We've never worked together, even though we could at some point, right. you know, but it's just they already have their team in place and whatever. That's fine with me. You know, it's, I consider them good friends and maybe something will happen. What about home life and work-life balance for you? Mm. Do you prioritize that or is it just like work, 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 or how are you with that? Well, it's tricky because my studio is in the house. It's not a separate structure. I don't have to go anywhere. So there's pluses and minuses, but I would say it's more of an advantage. I can take a break whenever I want, walk around, take a walk around the block, come back. It's a, now it's a kind of a fresh perspective. All of those are advantages. 
sometimes there's there's disadvantages of schedules of you know I need to get something done and there's other stuff happening in the in the house but that really I mean I'm kind of used to that because I grew up with that with my parents running a business from the house so to me it's a little bit normal but I know that I need to get a certain amount of work done I'm great at meeting deadlines so if there's deadlines that need to be met, I, I totally get those done. I feel like I have a good work ethic yeah. in terms of that. If you don't, I think you get in trouble. Then you, you just start getting sidetracked too much. Yeah. It's weird, you know, when I know I have stuff to do, one part of me is like, oh, I just want to sit and drink a cup of coffee and lay on the couch and watch some TV. But if I start that, then it just eats away at my brain. And I'm like, I can't be doing this right now. And I get up. And I come back in here and I'm like, oh, I got to pump out some stems today, which is like one of my least favorite things to do. (laughs) Thank God for Andrew Schultz. I'll I'll, I'll usually have like a a full day in the studio here. And then I call it, now I'm going to my other office and I'll go to the living room (laughs) and whatever. I'll maybe do some emails or whatever. And it's, it's tricky, but I think if you keep focused, it's okay. Yeah. The thing that I think that gets me is that I own my own business. I don't have a big team. I don't have a manager. I do it all myself. So throughout the day, while I'm mixing, I'm also looking at emails and responding when I can. And I think one of the parts that is always tricky, I think for every engineer or producer that's doing it all themselves is when you're busy, it's difficult to start lining up what you're going to be doing maybe next month or next week, Mm -hmm. right? Because you're so busy right now, it's difficult to make those phone calls of trying to get more work or whatever, right? And then all of a sudden it's not busy and now there's nothing because you weren't able to set it up a couple weeks ago prior. So that's always a tough thing to juggle. Have you managed to keep your financial discipline about you going back to those lessons learned from your parents have you carried that forward and have you just gotten better at it yeah i think there were some dips along the way (laughs) where things cost more than what you would hope they would or, or or you buy some things and then all of a sudden the work doesn't come in and for me with Dolby Atmos, I purchased this whole system and then it was very slow getting going. So I had a small business loan to pay for it. So I'm paying off monthly bills and like there's nothing coming in for it for a long time. So some of those decisions get a little tricky and difficult to handle, but I mean, that's business, you know, (laughs) sometimes you have to take chances. If I didn't, take chances, you just kind of get left behind, which was a big thing that I saw when it first went from tape to Pro Tools. Uh There were engineers that were refused to learn Pro Tools. Yeah. And I learned it and I was thinking, if you don't learn the new technology, you're just going to become a dinosaur. You have to keep learning. Like what we talked about a long time, you know, when I was younger, you just keep learning the new technology whether that's immersive or, or new plugins or, or anything. So I have kept that financial background. I think it's definitely continues to help and gets better because there's 
there's things along the way that you're like, ah, I could have done that a different way that could have been better financially, but yeah, you just learn, learn from mistakes. You have to keep moving forward and trying. I just wanted to share with you a, a couple anecdotes about the whole Atmos thing. When I brought it up to a friend of mine who's probably in his late 70s, early 80s at this point, mm. and he's kind of been a mentor along the way. And we were talking on the phone about it. And he goes, I said, you know, I want to get into this thing and this is what it is. And what are your thoughts? And he said, do you remember when you were trying to decide between whether or not you were going to buy a Pro Tools rig when Pro Tools was first arriving on the scene? I said, yeah. And he goes, this is that moment all over again. And I said, ah, you're right. You are so right. That is a good perspective. And he said, your decision back then with Pro Tools was spot on and what your gut is telling you now and your intuition, you really need to follow it. And I think that mm. you're going to be okay. And I said, okay, mm. that's good. And another note on that is I've, I've been talking to a, some other folks about getting into Atmos and some are just like, yeah, I, I'm kind of waiting till I have the work. And I said, you know what? I didn't have any Atmos work when I decided to get into Atmos. It wasn't until I got the whole thing right. that I got Green Day, Alanis Morissette, Death Heaven, these major things that came my way immediately afterwards. And a lot of them are like, oh, right, huh, fair point. So your concept of just diving in and learning new things, I think is so important for people to remember and take away from, if they don't take away anything else from this interview, take your perspective on learning. Yeah. Because it happens over and over and over. Like in this case, Atmos, if you're going to do it, you have to learn it before you can actually get a client and do it. So right. you need to learn it properly and have the actual system. If you wait, then you're really going to be scrambling. And is it really going to work that first time? I don't know. <laughs> you know, and, right. and not, not just that, but but anything. Just consider doing a live broadcast. If you don't know what you're doing and all of a sudden you're sitting in the chair, there are so many things that are different that you have to know in advance what the skills are before you actually sit in that chair. Yeah. And, and if, that's why I say if you need to be ready. And then when the opportunity comes, then you can do it. You need to be ready in advance because you don't know when the opportunity comes. It's like all of a sudden, boom, phone call, okay, you're doing the session now, you know, like that kind of phone call, that kind of thing can happen at any time. So you'll already have to be ready for those opportunities. Right. You just can't jump into a race if you haven't trained for it. Right. And you can't completely true. Or, or another analogy, a cooking analogy would be like, Hey, I want to cook for people. I want to, I want to have a restaurant but I'm going to wait till the orders start coming in to buy a stove and learn how to cook. Yeah. You can't do that. And those opportunities will definitely happen. They've happened to me over and over and over, but I feel like those opportunities are there for everybody. It's just, are you ready for it or not? Yeah. A good example is recording the orchestra and mixing for Star Trek Strange New Worlds. Dennis Sands is the main primary scoring mixer for that show but at a certain point in season one he had conflicting times with where he was doing like a, a major film and he was drawn away for a while and he asked me if i would 
take over and be the scoring mixer for the weeks that he could not do. And it was almost 45% of the season one that I did as the scoring mixer. Now, since 93, I think it was, was the first time I did a film score at the Hit Factory in a different position. But, you know, I've had experience doing it, but not always in that chair where you're in control of everything now. But I felt like I was totally ready. I was ready for that that opportunity. And that just came one day when Dennis was in the room. <laughs> so mm-hmm. those opportunities are there and will happen. So being prepared for that is, is the key. And I, I've said this on the show many a time, opportunities do not present themselves when it's convenient for you. Right. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. They arrive out <laughs> of nowhere. True. And the key, as you say, is being prepared for them. Yeah. Well, I think that's a great note to end on. Brian, thank you so much for making time for me. I really appreciate you making yourself available. It's it's really great to talk to you more so than uh, we did at dinner six right. months ago at NAM. Will I see you at NAM this year? Yes. Okay. I'll be there. Yeah. All right. We'll hang out again. We'll hang out again. <laughs> it's been a pleasure. Take care. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for, giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LP UNF. Brian Viverts here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks so much for being here with me today. Want to implore you to head on over to your podcast aggregator and leave a five-star review. That would really help out the show and tell everybody that there's something cool going on here. In spite of being here, as long as we have, we still want to grow, right? Okay, that's all for me today. I want to thank the crew. That includes Anne-Marie Plow in the editing, Cliff Truesdale on the Working Class Audio theme song, and that voice greeting you at the top of the show, that's Chuck Smith. He's badass. Connect with me on LinkedIn and feel free to send me an email, matt at workingclassaudio.com. Until next time, my friends, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out. (laughs) 